Test one, two, test, test. No, it's not. Okay, good.
nobody here but us two, so we're going to sit back there and together. Weird not having any other
brethren, good morning. Let's go over a couple of announcements. Uh, we pretty well got to all four of the first ones down. Uh, fifth would be evening service to resume tonight as Jared's uh, tiredness varies. So far, good. You good? Well, tentatively, let's plan on being there tonight there at 6 p.m. Bring the usual dish to pass. Tom Roth uh, has been apparently exposed to COVID by his son David, uh, who came down with it, was it uh, Thursday or Friday? And he's laying low for a few days. His uh, grandson had it when he was staying with Tom, and Tom didn't get it then, so hopefully uh, he's going to hold up well in this. So keep Tom in your prayers. Do we have any other announcements or updates? How's your brother-in-law Gary doing? Any, any word? He did have the surgery, correct? So he's, he, he is on the mend and he's good prognosis? A good prognosis? Thanks. And how's Ken holding up? Doing all the housework and. He wants to go home. Yeah, okay. Well, let's keep both of them in prayer as well. Any other uh, messages or announcements to make? All right. There being none, scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of Psalm, chapter 85. That'll be page 923 in your pew Bible.
you stand with us, please, as we begin our service with opening prayer? Brother Dale, would you please lead us? standing. Will you take your Trinity hymnal and turn to number 101, 101 in the red.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken again from the book of Genesis, chapter 42, verses 1 through 26. And when you come to that, please stand with us. Chapter 42, verses 1 through 26 in Genesis. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us, so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man, who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and the and one and one is no more. Joseph said to them, It is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison, so that your wor- words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them in the custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified, and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them, since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then turned back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. And the Lord added blessing to the reading of his word.
We take your red hymnal again and turn to 299, 299 in the red. Our text this morning is Genesis chapter 42. Genesis 42. Last Lord's Day we studied how Joseph, a dungeon slave, was elevated by Pharaoh to become of all things, vice-regent of all of Egypt. Because of his God-given insight concerning a time of severe famine on the horizon after seven years of great plenty. This was no less than God's way of preserving not only Egypt, but the known world of the Middle East, including Canaan, where Jacob resided with his sons. Sure enough, the first seven years produced so much grain that just one-fifth that went into the storage 
uh, granaries, just one-fifth of the uh, harvest was so plentiful that the overseers just stopped tabulating the amount. They just couldn't keep up with it. You know, when God is in the outcome of things, there's no skimping on the provisions. God is bountiful with his grace. Paul expresses in his prayer for the Ephesian church saying, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And then he breaks into a benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine. According to his power that it is work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians 3 verse 16 and following. It's also worthy noting that God blesses the world wherever his believing people reside. Joseph became the savior of the known world in the day of this great famine. Well, today's study begins a multi-chapter, elaborate disclosure of how Joseph was reunited with his strange brothers beginning with a rather lopsided reunion. As we come, let's ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, we thank you that all things are in your control, even hurtful things, discouraging things, sad things, disheartening things, as we see with Joseph, and how his brothers treated him, the things he went through at your hand only to become Egypt's vice-regent. We bless thee, Lord, for the truth of your word. You do take care of us. And regardless of what men do to us, even sometimes fellow brothers, We learn from it. We're humbled by it. We're better for it. And we thank you that you get us through all of the trials and testings that come into our lives. That you might get the glory. Praise you for that. Please be with our sick today, those that are hurting. Lord, this COVID thing is... um, continues to be a harassment we're asking for complete relief and healing make us a strong and healthy church again in Christ's name
Amen. We're in the book of Genesis, chapter 42. And we're considering this whole thing of Joseph being the vice-regent of Egypt by appointment of Pharaoh himself and his brothers coming down to Egypt to buy grain. So there's a reunion that takes place, but I'm calling it a lopsided reunion. Why? Because verse 8 says, Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. That's pretty lopsided. Now, why were his brothers in Egypt in the first place? Verse 5. The famine was in the land of Canaan also. When I was growing up in rural Pennsylvania, it was quite a a distance to the closest town, but there was a local, they called them convenience stores, just about two miles away from the farm. And they did a tremendous business. Why? Well, (laughs) when you're the only store around, people will flock to your location to patronize your business. It's a matter of, just like they call themselves, convenience, right? Well, in the days of this famine in the Middle East, it was a matter of survival. Egypt and its granaries was the only store around. Jacob says, verse 1, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die one observation I discovered in studying for today is the almost insignificant statement in verse 27 when Joseph's brothers were en route returning to Canaan with their donkeys loaded down with grain at a rest stop we are told one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey. What? Yeah, he discovered that his silver payment was in the mouth of that sack, but why feed for the donkey? That kind of struck me. Well, it's because the land was so dry, so parched, Every shred of vegetation was scorched or withered. So not only did people have to purchase grain for their families, but they had to have grain for their livestock as well. Talk about a burden of problems from a famine. In our area around harvest time, I see these huge tandem trailers from Hunt Farms out here on the highway transporting shelled corn to the processing plants, much of it to become feed for livestock as well as for human consumption, I'm sure. But in Joseph's day, it was feed sacks strapped to the backs of donkeys. And judging from the size of Jacob's livestock, to feed them was a daunting test, to say the least. And there was something else 
weighing heavily on the shoulders of Joseph's brothers. Not once, but four times. Verse 9, verse 12, verse 14, verse 16. Four times Joseph has assumed that they are spies. He calls them spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. Verse 9. Now that's a rather far-fetched accusation in as much as they were simple shepherds who had no affiliation with a political entity. But Joseph's insistence that they were spies was a test. It was a test to strike fear in their hearts, to cause them to revisit their past actions in regard to him, which is exactly what happened. Look at verse 21. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. And they're referring to Joseph. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. And that's why this stress has come upon us. Reuben said, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an account for his blood. They think Joseph is dead. And this whole conversation was spoken in Hebrew unbeknown to them that Joseph could understand every word they were saying because Joseph had used an interpreter to hide his Jewish background. Verse 23. So when he spoke to them, he spoke to the interpreter. Then the interpreter spoke in Hebrew to the brothers. And it went back and forth like that in the whole conversation. So they're not understanding that this guy that's vice regent of all of Egypt knows or understands Hebrew. When they discovered the return payment of silver in their sacks of grain, verse 28, their hearts sank and they turned to each other trembling and said, What is this God has done to us? They know they're in trouble. You go down to Egypt to buy grain, you pay for it. On your way home, you want to give some to your donkeys to eat, and there's your money that you paid for. I can imagine they open one sack, and then, wow, then another sack, and then another sack, and then another. And there was a return of all of their investment. This this was not right. There's something wrong here. We are in trouble. And God did that. They, They admit it. God has done this to us. Now understand a few points here. Number one, God proves our Christian faith... By imposing trials on us. 
Joseph's brothers are told by Joseph that he intends to test the veracity of their testimony, namely, that they are all brothers of one family and have come to Egypt for no other motive than to buy food for their family, which includes an older father and another very young brother still back in Canaan. That's their story. And Joseph knew that it was he, as the youngest son at that time, that resulted in his brothers taking advantage of his vulnerability when they put him in a pit and later sold him as a slave to the Midianites. So, to test the veracity of their story, Joseph imprisoned Simeon as a guarantee that the rest of the brothers would return from Canaan with Benjamin. Verse 16, So that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. Verse 20 words it. So that your words may be verified. Verse 19. If you are honest men. Wow. So Joseph is embarking upon a means by which to put his brothers to the test with regard to what they say. You know, when people are in trouble, they they have no problem lying. They have no problem <laughs> stretching the truth so they look a little better. See if they can get out of the trouble that they find themselves in. But this is not a game. Joseph did not know if his brother's hearts had changed in that long, long period of time, 20 years, that had separated them. But he planned to find out. God, however, does not test us as his people to discover the true nature of our hearts. God does not do that. He already knows the true nature of our hearts. And herein is a difference. Now, it's still a test. But the tests that God sends our way are to prove to us and those around us the reality of our faith. Peter tells us that such trials are commonplace. Let me read it for you. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial that you are suffering. As though, as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange at all. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and following. Trials, in other words, are proof of God's spirit, God's blessing in your life wonder if you've ever looked at it that way. I think through do, usually when trials come our way, we say, oh my, what did I do that God is angry with me? That's the way I think. Boy, I messed up somewhere. Lord, why is this happening to me? What did I do? Show it to me.
But often God sends trials our way to prove our faith and to show the rest of the world that we are people of faith. Paul told the churches of Galatia, even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Galatians 4, verse 14. Wow, there's quite a statement. In other words, their care for Paul in his severe illness was as gracious, was as loving as if they were ministering to an angel of God or even to Jesus himself. That's something no hard-hearted hater of God and the gospel would ever have done. James tells us, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. It's a test of your love. James 1 verse 12. So trials, rather than a punishment for sin, are designed to underscore your love for Christ by standing with Jesus no matter what. A loyalty and a fidelity which is not lost on God. No, he sees and he affirms your place in his kingdom. So whatever your trial, it's never meant to break you. It's meant to uphold you, to strengthen you. James puts it this way. No temptation, same word translated trial, has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tried Beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. I think one of the great examples of this was when God turned uh, Satan loose on Job. And he did that because Satan suggested that if God treated Job differently, in other words, instead of blessing everything that came his way, he began to curse him with all kinds of trials. God, that Job that you keep blessing, if you take away those blessings, he will curse you to your face. Okay, Satan, have at it. But you're not allowed to take his life. So you see, there is a much different motive for God when he tests us than when men, in this case Joseph, lays out a test. 
Joseph was looking to see if there had been a change of heart in his evil and jealous brothers in the decades since their last encounter. God's tests, while still trials, are to confirm to us, confirm to the church of God, that we are true disciples in the faith. And I would affirm that we need such assurance. We need it because doubt is the devil's ploy to kill our joy, our assurance, our obedience, our love for God. Remember what he did to Eve. The devil said to her, Has God said? Hmm. Are you sure you heard that right, Eve, that you're not to eat from the tree of the center of the garden? The devil's goal is death. God has a way of using conscience in us to effect repentance for our sins, to bring it about. Near as I can figure, 20 years had passed before Joseph's brother showed up on his doorstep in Egypt. 20 years. And yet, when he began to stir up their comfort zone by accusing them of being spies and then demanding that the truth of their words would have to be verified by fetching their young brother from Canaan, what was their immediate conclusion? Verse 21. Surely we are being punished because of our brother. And they're referring to Joseph. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. And that is why this distress has come upon us. As George would say, they're beginning to connect the dots. Things don't just happen. This, you know, this, why is this happening to us? God is on our case. Now, they could have taken a different tack for their experience. They could have said in their hearts or to each other, this governor in Egypt is just looking to beat up on some strangers from Canaan. That would have been one thing they could have done. Or it's because we're Hebrews that we're being singled out for suspicion. But there is none of that with these brothers. Their first, their only conclusion is that God is allowing these terrible trials in their life because of their unrepentant and past sin of how they sold Joseph into slavery and deceived their father Jacob with a lie that they have held secret for two decades. Their conscience remembers what the many years had long since forgotten. But no more. Incidentally, conscience 
that word conscience in English, is a composite of two words. Con, C-O-N, meaning with, and science, meaning knowledge. So, with knowledge. It is that little voice within all of us that discerns right from wrong and knows intuitively the very law of God that we're violating. Paul tells us that even the unchurched, untaught pagans on the street possess conscience. Let me read it for you. Romans 2, verse 15. They show, says Paul, that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Romans 2, verse 15. Now, it is true that people can be so absorbed, so consumed by sin, that nothing evil bothers them. I'm sure you have met people like that. Paul writing to Titus. Words it this way, to the pure... All things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. Titus 1 verse 15. In other words, their thinking, their conclusions on what's right, what's wrong, are corrupt. In 1 Timothy 4 verse 2, Paul says, Their consciences are seared, that is, cauterized, as with a hot hot iron. Burned into insensitivity to right and wrong. For us as believers, God has scrubbed our conscience clean with his atoning blood. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Hebrews 9, verse 14. And it's encouraging to see that Joseph's brothers are disturbed in their conscience about their past treatment of Joseph. They have not justified in their minds what they did to him. They haven't done that. They are not at peace, we could put it that way, with how they treated Joseph. This is a very good sign. We should react the same way. when the barbs of conscience will not allow us to sleep at night. When we cannot make it to the end of the day without righting some wrong we have done against another. When as David confessed, wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Psalm 51, verse 2 and 3. These are some valuable lessons 
contained in Joseph's lopsided reunion with his brothers. God proves our faith to ourselves by the trials we endure, and he uses conscience to lead us towards repentance. So that brings us to the return trip to Egypt. They back to Canaan, but, you know, the famine is still going on. So in chapter 43 of Genesis, when Jacob heard the terms of his sons return to Egypt, He didn't like that very much. In fact, he dug in. Chapter 42, verse 36. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. He's talking to his sons. You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. Remember, Pharaoh locked Simeon up in the dungeon to make sure they bring back the other brother that's up in Canaan. He goes on, Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin? Oh, everything is against me. My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. Remember that Jacob has been deceived. He has been deceived into thinking that Joseph was killed by wild animals and he has a blood-stained, beautiful, ornamental robe he had gifted to Joseph. He's got that as proof. Simeon is now locked up in Pharaoh's dungeon. His other sons want to take Benjamin with them to Egypt. So Jacob is doubling down. There's no way he is going to release Benjamin to travel to Egypt to settle this dispute. Oh, and by the way, there's another problem that cannot be ignored. When the sons opened their sacks of grain, chapter 42, verse 35 tells us, as they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. What? When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Genesis 42, verse 35. Oh, my. Now as they contemplate returning to Egypt, they're in danger of not only being accused of being liars, but also of being thieves. Two offenses which would surely carry the death penalty. You don't lie to Pharaoh, and you don't steal from him. 42 verse 29 says, You must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. 
So it had already been laid out on the table. Just so you know the consequences. You better bring that younger brother back. So no, no wonder Jacob is doubling down saying, My son will not go with you. Chapter 42 verse 38. I mean, can you blame him? His fears as well as those of his other sons are well founded. They're going to get down there in Egypt, far away from the homestead. And when the governor of Egypt proves them liars and proves them thieves, all of them will be annihilated, leaving Jacob alone in sorrow and grief and certain ruin. They're not stupid. They're figuring this out. Ah. But when the food ran out, clear heads prevailed. Jacob was forced to say, chapter 43, verse 2, go back and buy a little more food. And that opened the whole discussion again about Benjamin. And Judah was bold enough (laughs) to broach the subject with Dad again. Well, Dad, you want us to go back to Egypt and buy some food so that we don't die. Uh, But the ruler down there said to us, just reminding you, Dad, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Chapter 43, verse 5. This is a not-so-subtle way of telling Dad that if they show up empty-handed in Egypt without the younger son going with them, they will be proven liars and executed. Can you see Jacob? He's just... How's he going to work through this? He's pushed into a corner. Well, here's how he worked it out. He caved in. He acquiesced. He had to. Instructed his sons to pack some of the best commodities of their homestead verse 11 balm and honey and spices and myrrh and pistachio nuts and almonds some of which would never be produced in the hot arid climate of Egypt take these things as a gift verse 11 additionally they were to take twice the money verse 12 one amount to pay for the money returned in their sacks oh we don't know why that money came back we'll take it back and there are another amount to buy new provisions. And in Egypt before Joseph, they were well received. And Joseph instructed his stewards to take his brothers to his own house, prepare a dinner for them, which he did. 
But their fear was that such a gesture would end up with them being attacked and conscripted as slaves and they would lose all of their goods. Verse 18. They don't know why the governor wanted them to have dinner at his house. Nevertheless, <laughs> they went to Joseph's house. There they got to wash up from their journey. They got to prepare their gifts for Joseph. Benjamin was introduced to Joseph. And it was a heart-rending experience for Joseph. So he slipped away to weep in secret. Verse 30. And when dinner was served, all the brothers were seated, verse 33, in the order of their ages from the firstborn to the youngest. And they looked at each other in amazement. And on top of that, the portion of food Benjamin was given was five times that of any others in the group. Verse 34. This is a test. Benjamin now being the younger. How are the brothers going to respond to this favoritism towards him? Well, there's some valuable lessons here from this return to Egypt. Number one, our fears cause delays in our responsibility that would otherwise be resolved quickly. What do I mean? Jacob's son wanted, in obedience to the governor of Egypt, to take Benjamin, head down to Egypt, secure Simeon's release, buy more grain, get back to Canaan, ASAP. But Jacob dug in. He would not permit his sons to take Benjamin and go. So Judah, speaking for the rest of the brothers, said to Jacob, verse 10, As it is, Dad, if, as it is, if we had not delayed, we would have gone and returned twice. Does that tell you how long Jacob was dragging his feet on this? You know, life is like that. By fear, by laziness, by indifference, we delay what could become a reality in no time at all if we dealt with life's problems in a timely manner. Dad had a saying, my dad had a saying that drove us kids nuts. But he was right. Here's the saying. Never put off till tomorrow what you can do today. Did you get your room cleaned? Well, um, we were out playing baseball in the backfield, but we'll get it done tomorrow. That didn't fly with Dad. Some of you people have met my dad. Before God took him home. Never put off till tomorrow what you can do today. 
Now, he never quoted a Bible verse to support that model, but the Bible does address it, do you know? Solomon warns against the problem of lack of ambition. Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways, be wise. It has no commander, it has no overseer, it has no ruler, yet it stores its provisions in the summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? Oh, a little sleep, oh, a little slumber, oh, a little folding of the hands to rest. Yeah, and poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. Proverbs 6, verse 6 through 11. Very simply put, you're going to sleep your life away. Solomon also spoke on commitment, saying, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for in the grave where you're going, there's neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10. You got today to get things done. You don't have all the time in the world. Paul put it this way, everything exposed by the light becomes visible for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, wake up you sleeper, rise up from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Ephesians 5, 13 through 16. What about salvation? I've had people say to me, well, when I, get, when I get older, then I'll repent and come to Christ. They, they think repentance is something that they do and have control over. And they go out here on M24 and get hit by a semi-truck that snaps their life like that from them and they didn't get a chance to pray and repent and seek Christ what they got was a chance to die and go to hell for all of eternity You and I do not have all the time in the world. I'm tired of hearing that phrase. I get that from people. Well, I got all the time in the No, you don't. We do not have all the time in the world to get things done for God or the gospel. We only have the days allotted to us by Christ, and they could be many or they could be few. Isaiah reminds us, For the grave cannot praise you. Death cannot sing out praise. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. What's he saying? Isaiah is saying, you die, you're done. That's it. You die, you're done. He goes on. The living, the living, they praise you. As I am doing today, fathers, tell their children about your faithfulness. The Lord will save me, and we will sing with strength 
instruments all the days of our lives in the temple of God. Isaiah 38, verse 18, follow. Our fears are due many times to our unnecessary delays in accomplishing God's will for our lives. God is not going to make you feel happy about your life of sin. It's going to harass you till you repent. Secondly, Jesus, like Judah, bore of his line in the New Testament times, intercedes for his brothers and pleads himself to preserve their lives. Jacob was fearful that if he were to allow his older sons to take Benjamin to Egypt, that would be a sure sign of the boy's, the signing of the boy's death sentence. I'm not going to do that. Egypt represents the world in Scripture. Has no compassion. It has no leniency towards the people of God. It is Satan's kingdom. We recall Jesus' analysis of what we can expect from Satan's rule. He said to the leaders of his day, You belong to your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. John 8, verse 44, 45. What was the issue Joseph raised with his brothers? Namely, that they were spies. But to prove themselves truthful men, Chapter 42, verse 19. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. And this, the scripture says, they proceeded. To do. Genesis 42, verse 19 and 20. Joseph is saying to his brothers, Now you say you have a younger brother. You say your father's still alive. They, they, they live back in the homestead in Canaan. But I'm not sure I believe you. So here's the test you go get that brother. And you bring him back so that your very words will be verified. Joseph, as the governor of Egypt, was laying out the seriousness of being caught in a lie, a deception. Judah acknowledged such, and to assure Jacob of good outcomes, he told him, Then Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy along with me, and we will go at once, so that we and you and our children may live and not die. 
I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. And if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. Genesis 43, verse 89. Brethren, may I say this is a picture of the work of Christ. He laid his life on the line to secure the safety of his people in a hostile and evil world. He guaranteed our redemption by substituting his own life for our life. Scripture words, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, crucifixion and death. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Galatians 3, verse 13 and 14. Judah interceded for Benjamin, and he substituted his own life for Benjamin, to pacify his father. And of Jesus we are told. For there's one God and one mediator. Between God and men. And that's the man Christ Jesus. Who gave himself. As a ransom. For all men. The testimony given in its proper time. First Timothy 2 verse 5. The writer of Hebrews explains, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. One who's holy and blameless and pure set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Hebrews 7, verse 24 and following. You need not fear the world and its threats. When Christ is your mediator by faith, he will intercede for your sins before the Father, and his relationship with the Father guarantees your safety and your redemption. But you do need him as the mediator. What a wonderful, wonderful illustration is found in Judah saying to the Pharaoh of Egypt, you can take me and let him go. Christ was of the tribe of Judah. And he says to the Heavenly Father, You can take me and let him and her go. Our Lord, we're thankful and praise you for your righteous ways of doing things. It's not that you look the other way. It's not like, Okay, 
I'm just going to wipe the slate clean with regard to his sin, her sin, whatever. No, no, no. There's no whitewashing. Someone has to pay for the sins, for our sins. What's the penalty? The soul that sins must die. Someone has to forfeit their life to pay for your sins. Now you can do that. I tell people that all the time. You can do, you can pay for your sins, but it will take an eternity in hell's fire for you to pay. Or you can trust a substitute to stand in for you whose self is perfect in every way, shape, and form. No sin, no lying, no deception, nothing wicked at all. You can trust God's very own Son. Lord, please, let any here today, they're trying to earn their way to heaven by being good, help them to see there are there is none good, the Bible says, there is none good but God. So God has to appease God. God will have to Pay the price that he himself demands. And that's why he sends his son. And it son is like father. Like father, like son. Perfect in every way. Granting his life for ours. There's those here today that have not trusted in Christ as Savior. Help them to see. They need a mediator. They need a go-between. And the Bible says there's one mediator between God and man. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that we will seek your forgiveness through him, claim the merit of Jesus, asking Jesus to stand in on our behalf and to take our place. Oh, Lord, grant us that faith and that repentance in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the hymnal. And it's two... 239 in the hymnal. Let's stand.
in singing that song, O Lord, we are reminded that although there is the promise of your coming, your coming again, you also told us that no man knows the day or the hour of your coming. So there is mystery about it. The when, the where, what time, what period of history, we don't know. We're guessing that the reason that you have put that in the unknown and in the mystery category of life is so that we don't take you for granted. We don't think, we should not think, well, we can just plan this out. If we knew the day and the hour you were coming, we live as rank sinners right up till the day, and then we say, oh, then now I'll repent and ask Christ to forgive me, and everything will be wonderful, and, and I can have my cake and eat it too. But it's not going to take that particular track. Lord, when you come, it'll be a surprise. The scripture talks about that in Matthew. People just be about their work. They'll be working in their shops. They'll be getting married, giving in marriage. Voila, surprise. The bridegroom of the church shows up. But the virgins, not all of them, are ready. They have not trimmed their lamps. They have not shown, demonstrated that they are the light of the world. Lord, help us to realize we don't have all the time in the world to set things right with you. We have today. Maybe not even the whole day. I don't know. Only you know the day and the hour of our home going. But I do know this. It is appointed. I'm reading scripture. It is appointed unto men to die once and afterwards to face the judgment. Lord, will we be ready? We will if in fact we have Christ as our advocate, our lawyer, to defend our case on the basis of his own shed blood for our sin. Bless these truths to our heart. We thank you for your word. Bring us out tonight again as we study in Christ's name. Amen. See you tonight.